There's a really popular Netflix show from a couple of years ago. I mean, it was really hot for a minute. I think there's four different seasons. And in the first season, we're introduced into an alternate reality that these 12 and 13-year-olds begin referring to as the upside down. In fact, in the first season, 12-year-old little boy named Will disappears, and he's gone into this alternate reality. Comes out at the end of the season, and he's permanently affected by it. So is everybody else around him that comes into contact with him, and that's essentially what the whole series is about. And if you follow any of Jesus's teachings throughout the first four books of the Christian New Testament, you find out that Jesus also teaches about an alternate reality that is available to you right now on this side of eternity in this reality. And those who are engaged in that reality, that upside down reality, are also permanently affected and then have an impact on all of those around them also. So in this series, that's what we're looking at. This upside down kingdom that Jesus invites those of us who trust him into. And what he says is that those who are willing to seek out that upside down reality, what he refers to as the kingdom of God, will find everything else that they were distracted by as a result. That if you're willing to let go of these things in pursuit of this thing, you'll find not only that you get all of this, but that everything you thought those things were going to provide for you get thrown in with it to boot. It's a pretty sweet deal. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Um, and we're going to be looking at his teachings about his upside down kingdom in the book of Matthew. It's the first book in the Christian New Testament. Is written by a guy who had made a conscious decision at some point in his life that he didn't care about his relationship with God anymore. Like he sells out the Jewish people, his own people, in order to work for Rome. And when I look at the life of Matthew, I ask, what would cause a guy to not only sell out his people, but to abandon his entire worldview and God, everything that he'd been taught since he was a child? Like, what would you give that up for? I was asking my wife, like, what, what would it take? And she said, well, obviously he got to the place where he didn't think it worked for him anymore. And I think that, that that's probably something people still struggle with. Maybe you were raised in some type of a church environment or religious teaching. And at some point in your life, the dots no longer connected like they used to. And you begin to ask questions that you didn't feel anyone could give an answer to. And you walked away also. And that's where Matthew was. Then along comes this rabbi who's collecting a crowd of people that most rabbis would not have wanted to be seen with, who's saying things with such conviction. And it seems to be so consistent with everything that he remembered from a child, from the Torah and the rest of the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, that he's compelled to lean in and listen more. And we don't know how many times he heard Jesus teach, but at some point Jesus comes up to this tax collector for Rome and says, leave everything and follow me, and he does. The Bible says that he leaves all of the money just sitting right out on the table while he's taking taxes. And he walks away from the money bag and the table and the Roman guards and everything and begins following Jesus. 
and toward the end of his life, he sits down and he wants to write a letter to every other Jewish person that has ever felt like the dots didn't collect, uh, connect. I, I think that he writes this letter for you and me. And he wants us to see what he saw in Jesus. That's what he wants us to see. So Matthew starts with the genealogy of Jesus. It's in chapter one, and he shows us that Jesus comes from uh, the, the royal lineage of David and is a son of Abraham. And then he also spends the rest of the book connecting the dots between all of the things the Hebrew scriptures would say would fit the description of the person who would show up who would be the Messiah, God who shows up in the human story as a man. And, he, and he's doing all this to help us connect the dots as what he does. In fact, in the genealogy that he gives us, he adds the names of four women to the genealogy of Jesus that Luke's genealogy of Jesus does not include. And we'll find out why in a few minutes. But in chapter four, he starts the ministry of Jesus by saying that Jesus, after he was uh, baptized in the Jordan River by uh, John the Baptist, then begins to preach uh, that everybody should repent of their sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. And that's in Matthew chapter four, verse 17. At the end of Matthew chapter four, verse 23, it says this, Jesus then traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom the kingdom of God. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about Jesus spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went, people from Galilee, the 10 towns, Jerusalem, from all Judea, and even from east of the Jordan. And he's preaching the same thing about the kingdom of God. In fact, Matthew tells us that Jesus preached about the kingdom of heaven, and he mentions it 126 times. Jesus is obsessed with the kingdom of God, and he uses the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven interchangeably. So he's obsessed with this alternate reality that God is inviting us into. Now, the word kingdom doesn't, you know, like you and I might watch a Disney movie where it talks about a kingdom you know, where Elsa lives, right? Or where Snow White lives. So it's a place. But whenever the Bible uses the word kingdom, it's an action word. And it's implying that something is happening. It's a realm in which there is reign and ruling and dominion uh, and dwelling. Like when Adam and Eve reject God, they're rejecting God's ruling over their lives and therefore, Adam and Eve reject the kingdom of God, God's ruling and reigning over them. The Jews get to a place where they said they no longer wanted a theocracy. They wanted a king like all the other nations around them. And so they were also rejecting the kingdom of God. So mankind has rejected the kingdom of God. The Jewish people have rejected the kingdom of God, God's dominion, God's reign, God's ruling over them. So the Bible says that Jesus shows up preaching to reestablish the kingdom of God again. It's what he wants to reestablish. The kingdom of God is the authority of God over the human heart. His redemption of man's brokenness and man's response and submission to the will of God. 
And that's what Jesus is calling us back to. I mean, the, the truth is, none of us were born living our lives in submission to the will of God. I mean, we didn't even want to live in submission to the will of our, our parents or grandparents. We definitely aren't going to submit to the will of God, right? Like, what I want, dang it, is my own kingdom. And I want everybody submitted to the kingdom of Sean. And if I'm going to be transparent with you when I have gotten most frustrated with other people in my life, it's because they didn't do what I wanted them or felt I needed them to do. They were rejecting my kingdom. Now, if I feel that who is selfish and flawed and broken and sinful, then I can only imagine God's motivation when he knows that he knows what's best for us. Like, it'd be like, and some of us have experienced this, you absolutely love your kids, and then you'll have a kid grow up who completely rejects your authority in their life, and you, you know where this is going to take them, and there's nothing more important to you than your kid than submitting to the will of the one or the ones that have their best interest at heart and know better than them. I have a friend who was talking to me about that this week, that he's got a son who wandered away from God, and he's now in this place where he doesn't know how much longer he can let his son live with him anymore. And it's heartbreaking because the son has rejected this wise and loving authority that his father has over him. And he's asking, what can I do to bring my son back to me? That was the question that God answered by sending Jesus. So naturally, his message is, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So let go of the thing that has kept you distant from it. Repent of your sins. Put your faith and trust in God. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's his teaching. That contrasts with the kingdom of man because those who were bought into the Jewish system felt that you get what you get because it's owed to you, because you earned it. You're a good person. You're a better person. That's what you are. Then the kingdom of Rome says you get what you get because you take it. You have power. You have wealth. You get what's yours or you don't get. And then contrasted with the idea that I can be good enough or I am strong enough, Jesus comes along and he says, no, the good things that you're looking for in life come because God gives them. Man, that's the exact, that's the upside down is that I'm responsible to either earn it or take it. And Jesus says, no, you need to let go of your seat in control and be willing to give that to God. That's what the kingdom of God is. And Jesus goes on to say things like, and you've heard this one, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. You've heard that before. But he starts the entire theme of this upside down kingdom in the very first sermon that we have recorded of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5. So if you've got your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 5. I'll start in verse 1. One day as he, Jesus, saw the crowds gathering, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. Verse 3. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit 
the, the whole earth. Now, what does it mean when it says that God blesses those? That generally the word is interpreted rightly to be favored. So Jesus is saying that God favors those who are poor for they know they need God. God blesses those who mourn and God blesses those who are humble. He favors them is what he does. And I don't know why, but when we feel like somebody in authority favors us, we feel like it's tangibly measured by whether or not they give us a raise by how much they pay us. <laughs> or I feel like I'm favored. Like, have you ever heard somebody say I'm blessed and highly favored? Maybe. I, well, I, I gotta be honest. When I hear somebody say I'm blessed and highly favored, I actually think they mean that in the right way. But sometimes when preachers talk about being blessed by God, they imply or we expect that if God's blessing us, that it should be measured in money. If not money, then influence. And if not money and influence, then authority and power. That's what we want, truthfully. So I ask myself, why do I, or why would you? Why would any of us want more money? Why would any of us want more, more power, more influence? And I think it's because of what we would do if we had those things. Hopefully, if you are a person who's like, what I really need is more money, what I really need is more power, what I really need is more authority or more influence, it's not so that you could be an evil, wicked person. It's so that you could get for yourself the things that you feel you lack. What we would do with those things is we would get for ourselves security. We would get for ourselves provision is what we would get. We would get shelter. We would get rest. We would get peace. We would get satisfaction. We would be contentment. We would find joy. Like that's why we want all of those things is because what we can get with those things and what Jesus wants us to see is that he is the better source for all of those things that you would use money to get. And in Jesus' context, to a people who are oppressed by Rome, who are lost, who feel like God has abandoned them. He says, God favors those who know that God was all along the source of everything they thought they needed these other things to get. That's why Jesus later says in this sermon, seek first the kingdom of God and all of these other things will be added to you. Why? Because the source of your greatest satisfaction is God, not the stuff you want from God. So he starts off with, blessed are the poor. Why are the poor blessed? He gives us the answer. It's because they know they need God. So it's not that God goes, all poor people are favored. No. He says, the advantage that a poor person has who is mine, who is in the kingdom of God, is that their situation has placed them in a position to recognize what everybody should recognize, that they need God. I need God more than I, my job. I need God more than my health. I need God more than money. I need God more than, right, more than security, more than shelter, more than peace, more than food, more than joy, more than... Because if I am... Now, the only way you can ever get to the place where you say this is that you actually trust that God knows what's best for you, that God sees you, and that he loves you. But if you can get yourself to a place where you believe that 
God sees you, God loves you, and he knows what's best, then you're a person who can be okay with whatever you have. Like I, that's why the King James translates this as blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Because the way that it's written implies more than not having money. So when he says you're poor, it's the idea that you recognize how desperately you need God. That's the point. It's irrespective of money. It's those who pray, give me this day my daily bread. Those are the people who know how much they depend on God. And this is what Jesus says that we in the kingdom of God should pursue, a dependence on God. And I'm wondering if you and I are going to be completely honest with ourselves, what things we depend on more than God, or what things God would ask us to let go of that we wouldn't because then we would have to depend on God, and that scares us more than not being dependent on God. There's a woman, one of the women in the lineage of Jesus that Matthew mentions. Her name is Rahab. She's from Jericho. She's not Jewish. You can find her story in Joshua chapter 2. And she's a woman who, I'm going to say this delicately, is known for things that no woman would ever want to be known for. And then that was her career. Now, at some point, she stopped or maybe she had an alternate day job because that was a night job, of making linen out of flax is what she did. And, and at some point she hears about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And she recognizes how desperately, like men have failed her, her family has failed her. She's got this side hustle making linen, but what she really needs is something that's real. And she hears the story of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and what he did when they crossed the Jordan River during the flood season. And she says, if that's real, that's what I need. Now, Joshua sends two spies into Jericho. It's the first city they come to when they enter into the promised land. And they're afraid they're going to get caught. And they almost do. But Rahab, the harlot brings them into her home. Now, seeing two strange men going into her home was not an uncommon thing for her neighbors to see. But she shelters them. She takes them up to the roof of her house and hides them under the flax. That's how we know that she had that side hustle of wanting to make linen. And then lies <laughs> to the soldiers who are looking for the two men, who the two spies that came into the city. And then she lets them out of the window through a cord and... They say, they ask her, what do you want us to do for you when we come? And she says, just remember me. Like she wants their, she knows her need for God. And so how does God reward her? How does she inherit the kingdom of God? This is how. This harlot, who was not Jewish, but who recognized more than anything in the world that what she needed more than everything in the world was God becomes 
First, she's right now in the right this second in the presence of her creator. Second, she becomes the great grandmother for King David. And third, we're still talking about her 3,500 years later. Yeah, I, I think I think God favors those who know their need for him. Even her great-grandson, David, said in Psalm 40, verse 17, As for me, who is rich? He's a king. Since I am poor and needy, let the Lord keep me in his thoughts. You are my helper, O oh my Savior, O oh my God. Do not delay. Why was David saying this? Because he knew that all of my life is fragile. Like without the blessings, the favor of God, I lose everything. God is my source. And God goes, and that's how you found the kingdom of God. Those people inherit the kingdom of God. It's the number one thing. The number one thing. It's the number one thing that kept the Pharisees out of the kingdom of God. Right? It's that they were sufficient. They didn't need Jesus or didn't know they needed Jesus. So because they did not recognize their need for the Lord, they did not inherit the kingdom of God. It's why the rich man, when Jesus said, how do I inherit eternal life? He said, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And he walked away sorrowful because he was very rich. Why? Because he wouldn't get to the place where he would say, above everything else, I need the Lord. So in a world that values power, confidence, and independence, Jesus says it's those who know their need for him that find the kingdom of God. Actually, he says, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The second thing that God favors in his upside-down world is those who mourn. Now, the word mourn here is the same word that's used to describe the way Jacob felt when he thought that his son Joseph had been eaten by a lion. Man, this is, this is grief that aches. This isn't you get sad. It's... Like the idea that those who mourn, it's those who are familiar with what it means to grieve. God favors those who grieve. There's a verse in the Hebrew Scriptures that's repeated again in the New Testament that says, A man of sorrows, Jesus, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Now remember Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. And what he says is that people who are familiar with grief will find that God's response is comfort. And there's a lot of things to grieve in the world. Death, suffering, injustice, loss, failure, and even, if not especially, our personal depravity and sin. David commits adultery against his best friend with his wife, Bathsheba. He gets caught, finds out what the consequence is going to be. That even though God forgives him because of his repentance, God didn't take away the consequence. And then he writes Psalm 51 in response to him recognizing his own personal depravity. And he says in verse 16 and 17 in his prayer to God, God, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice, God, that you desire is a broken spirit, 
you will not reject a broken and repentant heart. Bro, there you go. That's the heart that would be comforted. That's what it means to mourn. He says, those who mourn in their hearts toward God are comforted, forgiven, restored, and healed. So let me say to you that according to Jesus, those who have suffered abuse, when they turn to God and his kingdom, his rule and reign over their life, will be restored, healed, and comforted. Those who've lost a loved one, who turn to God and his kingdom, his rule and his reign and his dominion over them, will be restored, healed, and comforted. Those who suffer loss will be restored, healed, and comforted. So Matthew brings up a woman in the lineage of Jesus. Her name is Tamar. Judah has three sons. The first son is Ur, the second son is Onan, and this, the third son is Shelah. Ur is given to Tamar. That's his bride. Judah picks the bride. Uh, Tamar and Ur come together. And here's what the Bible says. That Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. So then Judah goes to his second son, Onan, and tells him to marry Tamar and says, As our law requires of the brother of a man who has died, you are to produce an heir for your brother. But every time Onan and Tamar were intimate, he made sure, and I'm not going to go into any details, that she couldn't conceive. But he kept conjugal visits out of selfishness. And then verse 10 of Genesis 38 says, But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother, so the Lord took Onan's life too. Well, Judah's not going to give his third son, Shelah, to Tamar. So he tells Tamar, My son's not ready to get married. Why don't you go back and live with your family? And when he becomes old enough, I'll let him marry you. But he doesn't do that. So Tamar hears that Judah has abandoned her. And there's a mourning period. There's no letter of divorce. There's no, like she's still bound by oath and by covenant to this family. So she finds out that Judah is going to be in a particular town and she puts on the clothes of a prostitute and goes to the city center, catches his eye. They're intimate. He has nothing to pay her. So, he, so she asks for his walking staff and his robe. And he gives it to her and says, and I'll pay, I'll buy these things back from you tomorrow. She says, okay. So she leaves and he comes back the next day and she's not there. So now he's out a robe and a walking staff and months go by and he finds out that his son's widow is pregnant. So he calls her, accuses her of adultery and says the punishment is death. And she says, by the person who owns, and then she pulls out this robe and this staff, have I become pregnant? Well, oh my gosh. <laughs> Can you imagine that happening? So then, yeah, he obviously forgives her. She doesn't marry Ur because um, Ur has already been given to somebody else. And she gives birth to twins. And one of the twins' name is Perez. And Perez 
is in the lineage of Jesus. So this woman has suffered great loss. She's lost two husbands, the opportunity for a third, and has been abandoned. And in all of this mourning, God comforts her. How? By giving her the family that she thought she had lost. By reconciling her to himself, by putting her in the lineage of, of Jesus. And here we are 4,000 years later, still talking about Tamar. God blesses those who mourn. In a world that values distraction, partying, and superficiality, Jesus says it's those whose hearts are broken who turn to him, regardless of the cause of their brokenness, that will be comforted. So if you're suffering, take heart. If you're sinning, then let your heart be broken and mourn. And in all cases, for the case of the widows, for the orphans, God says even those who offend or abuse a child, it would be better for their uh, a millstone to be hung about their neck and thrown into the deepest part of the ocean than for them to suffer God's wrath. But blessed are those who take their mourning and grief to God because they will be comforted. And finally, God blesses those who are humble. And no one likes to be overlooked. I don't. I've already shared before that I'm, <laughs> I don't like admitting this, but I'm generally, I won't say generally, I have insecurities that things that can be brought up when people say or do certain things to trigger those insecurities. And I, like a lot of people, I think, I don't think I'm weird in this, I, I like to be liked. I like to be respected. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to be liked or having a need for other people to see the value that you bring to the table or the value that you have intrinsically just because you exist. I just think that sometimes in our pursuit of those things, we can sometimes chase them in inappropriate ways. And I think that's where Jesus is going in this. In Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 23, excuse me, verse 11 and 12, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, the greatest among you must be a servant. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It seems like the thing that God hates most is somebody who thinks more highly of themselves than what is appropriate. So those who recognize their place before the God who is the source of everything that they've used to become great in the first place and is still overestimating themselves, I think that drives God nuts. You look at the life of Jesus and at the Passover Seder that we now celebrate through communion or the Lord's Supper, as some religious traditions call it. Jesus says, I, you call me master and Lord, and I am. And if I, as your master and Lord, can wash your feet, because he'd taken off his robe and he'd washed the disciples' feet, he said, if I can do that for you, I'm not even asking you to do that for me. 
how much more should you be willing to do that for each other? But the idea that we would serve people who haven't earned it somehow uh, is repulsive to us. But Jesus said, it, I think the comparison is, then how much more repulsive would it be for God in the flesh to serve the needs of mankind? There's another verse in Philippians that says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who did not think equality with God to be something to be retained, but humbled himself and took on the lowly position of a servant and died a sinner's death. So he said, let that attitude be in you. That's, that's what Jesus meant when he said, the humble. It's those who don't have to have in order to be okay with their life, that God says, we'll inherit the whole world. Like, it, it's not whether or not you have, it's whether or not you have always felt that you had to have in order to be okay with God, in order to feel as though God did not owe you anything anymore. I mean, the sin of Satan was that he wanted God's throne. Adam and Eve's sin was that they wanted what they wanted more than what God wanted. They didn't trust that what God had for them was good enough, so they were going to take it into their own hands. I mean, I think you can make the case that all sin has as its root pride. So God favors the humble. You and I have to ask, does God know best or not? Does God see me or not? Yes, he knows what's best. Yes, he knows and he sees me. Then the question is, has God failed me or not? If God knows what's best and God sees me right now, and God hasn't failed me, then what I have and where I'm at right now is okay in God's eyes. Therefore, I must learn to be content also. That is humble. And God favors the humble. And he says, you will inherit the entire earth. The whole thing. The whole enchilada is waiting for you, bro. That's why Jesus said that those that there's no one who will ever give up mother or father or brother or sister or houses or land who will not receive a hundredfold both in this life and in the life to come. Like, what do you need God to do for you that he hasn't already done? And it's this idea of being this reckless abandonment to the will of God that God favors. Ruth is the last lady that I'm mentioning from the genealogy of Jesus. She's not Jewish either, and she's from Moab. In fact, there's a couple, a lady named Naomi and her husband and their two sons, who flee Israel because of a famine. They abandon their people. They go to Moab, and their sons marry outside the faith and actually have disobeyed the Torah in doing this. And sadly, all three men die, Naomi's husband and Naomi's two sons. 
their widows, these young ladies, are told by Naomi, you still have your whole life to live in front of you. You go back, go back to your homes. Let your families find a new husband for you and like live, live, go, go live. But Ruth looks at Naomi and says, your people are my people. Your God is my God. I trust him. Like I am okay with, I am okay without. And Ruth goes back to Israel with Naomi who has nothing. She's a widow who has a daughter-in-law who is also a widow who takes an immigrant job picking up scraps in a field behind other immigrants who are working. Like she's at the bottom of the barrel and there's nothing in the story that would infer that she's not absolutely okay with where she's at. Like she doesn't need any more from God to be okay with God. And she's faithful to her mother-in-law, her station and life that is significantly less than what it was. And the God who's allowed her to get to this place and God allows her to inherit the whole world. How? She ends up marrying Boaz, who is <laughs> the owner of the field she was working in. We're still talking about her today, and she's the grandmother of King David. You know what's crazy? Rahab the harlot from Jericho is the mother of Boaz, who marries Ruth from Moab. Like, the only women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus have very complicated stories. But there are women that God blessed for the same reasons that God is willing to favor you and to favor me. When you and I say that you and I have to have this or that, we're disregarding the place that God has placed us and the condition in which he set us. But he blesses those who have and those who do not have as long as they know they don't have to have in order to worship God. In a world obsessed with wealth, ego, stats, fame, Jesus said that God favors those who don't need any of those things from God in order to obey, worship, and follow God. Those who hold on to everything they have with a loose grip are the ones who will inherit the entire earth. There are those who don't have, who once did, and those who know they don't have to have. And these are the ones that God favors. It's counterintuitive because the world says that your value comes from what you have, so you'd better not lose it or admit that you have any fault. And you better make sure that everybody recognizes how great you are. And Jesus steps into a world distracted from following after the ways of God by these things. And he says that it's those who know they need God most who recognize and grieve the brokenness in the world and in themselves and who are content with what they have and where they're at that receive the favor of God. And I'm wondering which one of these things you struggle with most. I can't answer that for you. 
but I'll ask you to pray and talk to God about it now. So if you would, bow your head. God, I love you with all of my heart, and I am thankful for all of the blessings that you have placed in my life. God, help us to be content right now where we're at with what we have. God, for those who are in unhealthy marriages and know that it would be easy to walk away from their spouse, but are choosing to be faithful to you right now while even their needs are not being met by the other person, I know you will bless. For those who are single but want to be married, for those who are struggling financially and wish they had more money, for those who are not healthy but wish they were, those, God, all of us have things that we feel could make our lives better. But dear God, let us not hold our worship ransom against you in some weak attempt to make you serve us. Forgive us and help us to become humble. God, help us to grieve, to not live distracted and partying and wasting our lives in pursuit of one thrill or entertainment or one conquest after another, but help us to learn to grieve the brokenness that's in the world and in our own hearts so that we can find comfort, not from our obsessions, not from our addictions, but in our relationship with you. And God, help us to recognize that what we need more than anything in the world, we already have because we have you. Thank you, Jesus, for showing up, for forgiving us, for putting your Holy Spirit in us, and for promising that all these things work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. We receive that, and we choose to live that by faith in Jesus' name, we say together, amen.